Hello, and welcome to the PeaceCast, a podcast where we discuss the Patchogue Arts Council's Partners in Education, Arts, and Community Empowerment Project, also known as Peace. My name is Katie Mead, and I am the Peace Project Manager and also your host for this podcast. Today, I have the immense pleasure of sharing an interview I conducted with our Peace Curriculum Director, Dr. Laura K. Reeder. Laura is a national leader for arts education policy, arts integration, arts-based practices, and artist-teacher preparation programs. Her various publications interrogate arts education and social contexts. Aside from her work with Peace, she is also currently a lecturer for arts education advocacy and policy at Boston University, a reviewer for the Arts Education Partnership, Arts EdSearch, and the International Journal of Education Through the Arts. She has held leadership positions with the National Arts Education Association, Americans for the Arts, the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, the New York State Council on the Arts, Massachusetts College of Art and Design, and Partners for Arts Education. So without further ado, here is Laura Reeder. Hi, Laura. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Katie. Thanks. My pleasure. So I figure we'll jump right in by asking about your role. I already explained to our listeners that you are our director of curriculum, but can you explain a little bit about what what exactly that means in the context of this project? Absolutely. Thank you. So to me, curriculum um, is complicated. I know that, again, we have visions of curriculum as sort of a stricture, like this idea that you create an outline and you follow the outline and you measure things, whatever. Curriculum to me is less about schooling and much more about um, sort of the origin of the word, which is to run a course and getting into sort of um, a vehicle together or deciding that we're going to stand next to each other and say, on your marks, get set, go. And we kind of run forward together. And so when we see hurdles, we have to jump over. We're like, okay, are we going to leap? Are we going to run around them? So to me, curriculum, while it is about having a plan, a course that we're going to, a course of action that we're going to take, it's so much more about actually addressing what we actually need to learn, addressing what we really must learn based on what students' needs are, communities' needs, how the teachers can get the job done, and who are the teachers. So in um, peace, all of those elements come into play, and my job is to make um, a very unique curriculum happen in every day to pay attention to really important issues and needs that students have, learners have, and in our case, learners who are often um, dealing with uh, severe segregation in their schools. And we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, So my job is to be that sort of coordinator or vision sort of person who says, okay, I've got the roadmap. I see where we're headed, but we might need to make a decision together coming up. So that's sort of the metaphor for my work. Every day, my job is to, I guess, keep us on track as well to keep using the run the course metaphor. So keep us on track. I agree. (laughs) You definitely do. I think you don't just create the curriculum for the teachers that then guide their students. I think you kind of create the curriculum for us, for the peace team, the leadership team, and remind us of sort of what are the core values and goals here. Exactly. Yes. And so what I do is I do, um, 
every single month. You know, I help to think about the content for the newsletter, for example, but I actually have to scan what we just did, where we're going and what's happening right now and how are we going to get there? So it also helps to make sure that we stay on track for measuring so we can actually adjust and say, are we doing, are we meeting our goals? Were they good goals? Um, If the goals don't look good right now, should we go back to our evaluation team and talk about how we're going to continue to measure if we see something that needs to be adjusted? And again, I I am a, you know, I am a researcher. I'm, you know, my doctoral research was on communities of practice and I care very much about good measures, good ways of documenting what's happening. And so we want to make sure my job is to make sure that we actually have good information to tell us if what we're doing is working. So that's great. Thank you so much. So <laughs> let's go, let's go back in time yeah. and talk a little bit about how you became involved with the Peace Project in the first place, sort of, you know, we've already talked with Beth and Loretta a little bit about their connections with one another and BOCES and everything. So let's let's talk about you. Where do you come into the story? Hi. Well, thank you. My name is Laura. My- <laughs> so um, a long, long time ago <laughs> in 2010, to be exact, um, I was closing a nonprofit organization that I had run for 10 years in Syracuse, New York. Actually, it was being run on behalf of the New York State Council on the Arts. And it was an organization that was all about creating relationships between schools and community cultural partners. Sound familiar? And what we did, what I, our organization Partners for Arts Education did was it helped schools and teachers to understand the language of arts and creativity. And it helped local community teaching artists and cultural organizations to understand the language of schools. And we brought money and resources to them in the middle so that they could um, use each other for more effective teaching and learning for kids. At the time, one of my board members, um, Carol Brown, was actually also working at the state level. Again, we both worked in state and national policy work while we were doing our success, our our jobs. She was the director um, sort of for education and arts enrichment at Suffolk County BOCES, ES BOCES, Eastern, Eastern Suffolk BOCES. And Carol and I got together and decided to write a national research grant with the U.S. Department of Education to see if what we were doing through Partners for Arts Education could translate into what school systems really had to do every day. School systems are very rigid, and it's almost impossible to do this beautiful cultural partnership work because it makes extra work for already overburdened teachers. Yes. And we know very well that the arts are often the first to be cut, to be underutilized, despite the fact that you know from your work and your research that time and time again, it's proven that arts create scaffolding for other subjects. So, yeah. They really do. And it was a time when art and music educators in schools and the few schools that also had dance and theater education... So the established educators were also feeling a little defensive because there was this new crop of community teaching artists that were coming on board. And lots of school principals and superintendents thought that if we brought in community teaching artists, they would replace the um, certified music and art educators in schools and that there would be sort of a more chaotic curriculum and kids wouldn't even get basic education in the arts. Mm. 
So we were super sensitive to that because I was also an art teacher in my early day. And I taught art teachers at Massachusetts College of Art and Design and Syracuse University, Boston University. I care very much about the success of an art or music teacher or, again, theater or dance. So we had all of those um, real world issues on hand as we wrote a grant to do serious research um, on whether or not this kind of relationship was effective. And we were trying to figure out what it was effective for. We were not concerned about standardized, again, sort of the newer movement in standardizing reading, writing, um, mathematics, um, education, which were, again, the standardized movement, the movement of standardization was happening. We were not interested in standardization as much as we were trying to find really good data that demonstrated where the arts fit into all that standardized stuff. So our original study, which was, again, sort of creative C3, creative classrooms, and again, Mm -hmm. it was a lot of C words involved, was more (laughs) about 21st century teaching and learning, 21st century um, skills and uh, dispositions. We thought that the arts, and research had shown that the arts actually don't help kids only in reading, writing, or whatever, that arts actually more effectively help young people to gain the essential life skills that they need um, for navigating, again, a world where being collaborative, critical thinking, which is never out of style, let's be clear, (laughs) good communicators, and creative was going to matter. There was a time in educational history where creativity was good. It's never, again, gone out of style, but that actually having creative sort of outside of the box thinking is something that is actually valued now in this century, whereas before it was seen as like, you're special. Now it's seen as something we wish everyone would have. So our study was sort of set up to do that. So fast forward now from 2010 till 2019. The project was successful, two four-year sequential um, randomized research trials that we did demonstrated with second through fifth grade students and their teachers that the arts, in fact, when integrated into a non-arts classroom learning situation with community cultural partners, did indeed significantly increase the 21st century skills um, development in students. And even more interestingly, it actually increased teachers' sense of their effectiveness, It their demonstrated effectiveness as teachers who could actually adjust a standardized curriculum to meet the needs of more diverse learners. We found that the student voices, which wasn't a standardized, wasn't a randomized measure, but it was actually a qualitative measure, showed that if we actually asked the students about their learning, they could demonstrate a lot more 21st century learning um, by actually being asked, by actually specifically using a rubric that measured those skills. And they actually showed a significant increase in what they learned from not having arts-integrated learning and having arts-integrated learning, where they learned by dancing through a social studies um, Mm, unit or whatever. So we were actually able to demonstrate something very significant. And then the final gem was that teachers noticed, students noticed, parents and administrators noticed through all of the findings that the students that obviously, maybe to some, were most had a greater impact on their learning were students who were often underrepresented in every way 
had sort of greater gains across the board. So with those findings, we wrote, again, a significant paper that has been, you know, sort of reviewed in the field and is really, you know, making changes. And we decided to write yet another grant to now demonstrate not the teaching and learning in the classroom as much as the impact on teachers and cultural partners as as a community around this big idea. Yeah. Peace was born from that project. And you've talked to Beth and to Loretta, who are the sort of founding geniuses around that. But <laughs> Loretta had taken over the job of my friend Carol Brown. And so Loretta was the new Eastern Suffolk BOCES leader who had the sort of power and the vision to say, let's step outside of the classroom and completely de-standardize what we're doing. Let's try yeah. this a little rogue and see if we can still manage to have significant gains with students, but really demonstrate how the community that surrounds school focuses on 21st century teaching and learning, but focusing specifically on underrepresented students. And so peace is all about making sure that folks who are not represented typically, who are underrepresented everywhere, and on Long Island, in Suffolk and Nassau counties, um, statistically, uh, the schools and the neighborhoods are segregated, um, historically segregated, and more segregated than other school districts across the United States. Yeah, infamously so. Yeah. And so we decided to tackle segregation. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. To this tiny yeah, million and a half dollar research or grant. Yeah. Not we're not doing research. We're actually just doing a demonstration here. Yeah. So so that a little bit answers my next question, but I, I would love for you to go in more deeply. But um, you know, the relevance of this work in the here and now, and the here being Long Island, which you kind of just alluded to, there are issues here that need some addressing. Uh, mm -hmm. serious, serious ones. One thing you haven't said yet, but I know you're very aware of is we have a very large uh, immigrant population on Long Island, and we are working with quite a few schools who are more than not have a lot of English learners in the classroom. And so they are going to have a different way of communicating and art is such a great way for them to do that. So if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about why this is important in this place at this time. Absolutely. So again, I'll give you a teensy backstory um, about what was going on as we decided to yeah, establish this project, write the grant to see if we were eligible for funding. And that was that, um, and it's a little political, so just bear with me. <laughs> um, it was at a time when the, um, the administration of President Trump was um, changing educational funding policy uh, by not using a measure. You couldn't apply for a grant to the U.S. Department of Education um, if you didn't demonstrate that there was high poverty in a school or in a school district. Right. Uh, Suffolk County schools uh, overwhelmingly are not especially high poverty, at least the districts there. But the way you measure that is two, there's two ways to measure it. There's U.S. Census, census data, which is where a census taker comes and knocks on the door or reaches out to someone to actually 
survey them and see how many people right. are home, all that census data. Then there's Title I uh, dollars, which parents, when they put their kids in a school or, or care providers put their kids in a school, say, yep, we are below the poverty line. Here's a demonstration of how much money doesn't come into our household, how many people are in our household that we have to feed with our paycheck every week. We are eligible for free and reduced lunch and other sort of supports. Right. The, the Trump administration said, well, we're not going to use that as a measure for whether or not you're eligible for a grant anymore. We're only going to use the census data. So, and again, the districts that we were using to apply for the grant, some districts had on the census, they said, well, they have a, you know, 20% or less than 20% poverty level in the census data. But the application for free and reduced lunch in those schools was just the opposite. Yeah. It was 80% application. So because we couldn't apply for the grant originally, because again, this census data was not showing that the schools were in need, um, refugees, immigrants, people who are coming from other places who are not going to respond to census data. They're not going to be on it. Like not yep. going to respond it. Significantly, we're underrepresented, right? Like I get crazy when I think about this. I get really outraged because I think, that is a lot of people when you look at yeah. those numbers. And so we were kind of in fits of rage as we knew we couldn't apply for the grant. Well, then the next year, things changed in government and we actually were able to make the case. And we even said in our application, like the story that I just told you. And so that we figured that the application readers would actually see that, see the change in the political landscape. And again, yeah. new leadership and know that, this was still a high poverty situation, but again, more an underrepresented situation. So we're talking about young people who are in schools who are not seen. They're not mm -hmm. seen valued. And they were at the time being criminalized by, again, our sitting president and the leaders that were making these policies. Criminalized because as refugees, immigrants, migrants, who we need for agriculture and to you know do work that folks who are not are not interested in doing. These folks are completely going to our schools and we're not caring for them. No. So, yeah. So we really wanted to address that. So there was a little rage in our application. And I have to say, I believe. <laughs> Justifiable that, rage. Yes. Well, and I believe <laughs> that by having such high populations of migrant, immigrant, refugee populations on Long Island, it's really important that we pay attention to the fact that wealthy school X sitting next to not so wealthy school, why, and what happens in between, how we fund them, how we support them, how we take care of those kids is completely different from school to school. Does that yeah. mean the Peace Project is not going to support a teacher in either school? Nope, we're going to care for it. The high wealth school teacher is still going to be eligible to actually do something with us. But what we're asking is for them to help their students to be more aware of what's going on over here yeah. And to help these students to be more aware of how they can participate in a whole world and be considered a whole person. So we're asking everybody uh, to desegregate wherever they're yeah. at. And it's really something I didn't know until I moved to Long Island and started becoming involved in the school districts and will eventually have a child in the school district. I'm from Brooklyn originally, which is a totally different ballgame, um, is not just the segregation, but the way that Long Islanders choose to 
look at a good school versus a bad school. And most for most of them, what that means is what percentage of the student body is white versus black versus Hispanic versus other, et cetera. And so in the school district that I'm going to be in, it's a little over 50% white, but it otherwise is very strongly leaning Hispanic. And so I think for some people that would be like, oh, well, that drags down the scores and all this other stuff. So it's so bridging this gap of understanding is so vital in this project, right? Like, because people shouldn't be <laughs> making these determinations based on this othering, right? It is absolute. You are absolutely correct. And again, you know, when we talk a little bit more about sort of what we're really doing to do this, to address this, I mean, we, it is by design that we're paying attention to racial inequity, to socioeconomic inequity, um, and to, again, who's present, who's represented, all of those things that I think are hard for folks, because then it makes you have to say, oh, I'm sending my child to the primarily white school with high socioeconomic status or vice versa, whatever. What does that mean about me? So then we've got to just stop making it about ourselves. Yeah. And we've got to start making it because I did the same thing. You know, I was like, oh, I'm sending my kids to a racially diverse school. But my my friends who didn't do that, like we would start to like have conversations and suddenly we were all self-conscious. Yeah. Let's let it go. Let it mm-hmm. go and say, look, we really need each other. We need each other every day. We need every single person that's here to contribute and to pay attention to what's not working. And while something might be working for my kid right now, things will change and it may have to be, you know, different in a few years. So why not just help each other all, all around so that when the time comes, when things shift and change, as they always do, we will be ready. And we will see each other for who we are and for what we contribute. Um, yeah. So yeah. It's about that. And it's hard. I think, you know, Long Island, if if you guys know your New York history, <laughs> Long Island is the epitome of the white flight. People started overpopulating Long Island because they didn't like the continued urbanization of New York City in terms of more immigrant populations, the growing black communities higher up in New York City. And this whole redlining situation is strong out in Long Island. The intentional uh, segregation, it's an intentional segregation here on Long Island. It's not like, oops, this just happened. People settle where they settle. So the project like peace what is sort of a goal there in as difficult as it is we listen we're not gonna in the next five years undo all of that damage but (laughs) let's be honest but we're gonna try to make a dent so what does that look like to you so it it's really quite funny because our project is one of the lowest sort of smallest funded projects in this U.S. Department of Education, um, arts education uh, support grant pool. There are projects that have many, million, many, many millions of dollars that are sure. doing national level something, you know. 
what's our cute little project over here <laughs> in the and like the little and the last jut of land in New York state going to do again because we're primarily in Suffolk County again which points right out into the ocean and we're literally on the edge of the United like, States <laughs> what are we going to do and I think that the challenge for us um is that we're demonstrating something that every Everybody experiences, whether you're in a large city or a small rural community, we're paying attention to who's next door. We're paying attention to who we share, right, that piece of disputed land with or who we go to the grocery store with. We're paying attention to our neighbors and we're really going to the place where everybody goes every day. Like your body still has to step out of the door and go to the grocery store and pick up the kid from school. And we're saying, just look around you and notice who is or isn't there. Pay attention um, to each other and ask a few more questions. So our project's ultimate goal is in developing this thing that we call a critical community of practice, which is saying we're a community, we're in this together, whatever this is. For us in peace, it's a strong belief that we can um, make sort of more visible folks who are often not visible in schools, that we can make that a promise for education through using creativity and arts and cultural resources more effectively. We can strengthen teachers and their already superhuman efforts in a classroom. We can help school principals, superintendents, boards, and parents to see why it's important that a school pays attention to the bigger world around it for its students. So that's what our real ideal is. And then how do we make anybody change what they do? Well, I belong and Loretta belongs and Beth belongs and all the teachers on our project and part participants and partners, everyone belongs to a larger community you know, I'm fortunate that I'm able to work in the national policy community. I've been doing this work for so many years. And so have, again, many of our participants that it's easy for me to take the findings of this project because it's with the U.S. Department of Education and help to advocate for different legislation every single year for yeah. change and how we educate. So by our relationships across the United States and around the world, because we also participate in global um, United Nations-based uh, communities, policy communities, we can take this little message here in this one little rural, sort of, again, not, not rural, uh, but sort of multi-land <laughs> space, whatever we are. Yeah, and we're diverse in our land, too. I mean, we're, we can be very urban in parts, and then it's very suburban. And then, yeah, parts are a little rural. We have farmland out here. Exactly. So by, by the nature of this project, and that was part of our application, was like, we are rural, suburban, urban, all in this tiny piece of land. And again, which, by the way, is still indigenous land, again, sort of, if you want to think about the humans on this land, um, the indigenous people that were here before us. And then the natural sort of non-human creatures that were there before them, yep. you know, all still here. And yep. how do we demonstrate again, nationally and globally, that everything we do is local? I don't know who's who's the one that said all politics are local. 
whoever it was. <laughs> like, I want to say that it was, yeah. So anyway, whoever it sounds it was, like an FDR thing or something. <laughs> I know, but I think it was a Kennedy, but maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, um, Kennedy too. Yeah. I don't know. I could be, I can't remember. I'm not going to misquote anyone on a podcast. So forgive me. <laughs> That's for the best. But the, but the locality, the idea of being local and then broadcasting sort of what we learn locally on a large scale through a critical community and critical, again, we'll talk about in a minute, is really the goal of our project. And we're yeah. doing it. So Yeah, because I think what you're talking about in terms of national policy is critical, but you can have all the laws and rules in place in the world on a national level, but how does that affect a tiny little town on Long Island if there's no one guiding that, right. you know? So for example, this is a great opportunity to identify the fact that Hampton Bay's schools um, is part of our project. There's some two teachers from Hampton Bay's schools that are part of this project. For example, they have high immigrant and migrant and refugee populations in their schools. And the art teacher and the English language teacher both created projects in their school through peace to raise up the voices of young people who were crossing the Mexican, Mexico, U.S. border. And these are students who are protected for safety reasons. Right now, their identities were not able to be broadcast, but they still brought in a local photographer, uh, photography artist and sort of other artists to photograph the students with drawings of their journeys in front of their faces to protect their identities, but also to put their words down in a place where they could be safe and express the fact that they're whole human beings. And they have something to yeah. say. And what happened is that the school board, the assistant the superintendent and the assistant superintendent for education got wind of what was going on, participated, saw the meaning of all of this, not just to the students who were underrepresented, but how other students were learning from them and were yeah. startled at their education. And now that is being broadcast as a presentation at the New York State School Boards Association conference this October by an administrator who is a policymaker, who is now yep. across New York State, which is one of the biggest sort of education states in the nation next to California and Texas, and now Florida. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, it's a counter offensive to some of the rhetoric that maybe is coming out of other states, right? Yes. So that little tiny project and this little tiny corner in this underfunded school is now making change because policymakers are paying attention to it because it is so impactful and powerful and powerful because it's an artistic experience. It's able to show sort of the real humanity while it also helped people who couldn't speak English to become part of our community. Yeah. To sort of see their, their value and it helped them to learn how to read and write. Like, yeah, no. And, and I, one of our, our jobs as the leadership team for Peace Project is to share this work like you're talking about with that like that administrator, because there is a very strong anti-refugee rhetoric in New York as we speak. So you're humanizing people again, rather than you're just this mass, this onslaught of humans imposing yourselves on our property, on our place costing us money. But if you see these children, some of whom their artwork talked about never seeing their families again, yeah. um, losing a sibling 
on the way. This is not, you know, people trying to take advantage of a system. These are desperate individuals. These are children. They you are. Know? Yeah. And they're going to be the promise of tomorrow here because so much research also demonstrates that immigrants are often the best citizens once they actually sort of become adults because they are so aware of the privilege that we have in the United States of America to succeed and thrive. And so, you know, this work wasn't just about immigrants and migrants and displaced people, but that is only one example from our tiny little projects that we can now magnify yeah. Um, that's also because this isn't really a research project as much as a demonstration project. And so we right. can actually now say, um, this thing happened. We're not saying statistically it's going to be something that you can go to scale with, but it is saying, hmm, what if we just try it here with this one place where there's a need? What if we address yeah. that? There's no harm. Um, uh, no harm. Uh, there's no harm. Yeah. Like, so what's what's the problem? The problem doesn't exist. And again, if it means that we have to work a couple of hours longer as educators, if it means that as a cultural partner, as a uh, teaching artist, I may have to do a little bit less of my fancy thing and more of my fancy thing with a little bit of attention to how it would read to young people, yeah. then we've all learned something. Definitely. So we've been talking a lot about sort of the outcomes, like the long-term goals. But I'd love to talk a little bit about the actual process in terms of what it's like to be an educator or a teaching artist. Uh, At the core of this, you know, the idea is to leave the school better than we found it, right? And so the teachers are the one who can actually, on a daily basis, enact this change long after their project has, quote, ended. So, Mm -hmm. You know, you've already used the, our term, your, the term that I believe you coined, the critical community of practice. And so what exactly is that in the context of peace and sort of talking about this idea of this really a year-long professional development for our educators and our teaching artists? Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, I can. So, you know, the the everyday work of peace and of our what we call critical community pra- of practice the the premise here is that wherever you are you know put your finger on a map and draw a circle around it and then start to have understand that somebody else maybe a mile away from you is on the map too and they're going to draw a circle around themselves there will be these overlapping concentric circles of what you do together something you might right meet each other at a gas station or you might have sure. to go to work together or whatever go to the library i don't know you have overlapping interests um just simply by your um sort of assignment as human beings in a space And so thus you are some form of community, whatever that is. In this case, it's a very intentional community. We've enlisted educators from primarily Suffolk County and some from Nassau County, cultural um, partners who under that umbrella we're talking about as individual teaching artists and representatives of cultural organizations, historic organizations, whatever that is, writ large, arts and cultural. And we're putting them all sort of, again, from their already proximal lifestyles Mm -hmm. into an intentional community where there's overlap 
in that they all are interested because they've applied. Um, they're interested in this in-between space, this third space of changing something about what they do by using more arts and creativity or more education and sort of human sort of social work in what they do. And this intentional community of people are the artists and educators who now come together every year for one large training. It's our summer institute where we actually start to wrap our head around all the issues we've described. It's just a two-day institute. And so that impact is nice. It might trigger um, and we hope um, spawn ideas of ways to change what we do and be better. But it's also sustained over the course of the year by coming together every single month um, on Zoom, sort of again, virtually and in some cases um, physically through what we call a critical community of practice. We are actually having a monthly gathering where we actually just for an hour and a half discuss the issues uh, that are at play in our community and move things forward so that everybody starts to imagine a partnership between a school and a cultural partner. And they start to imagine what happens and actually then play out those partnerships. Sometimes there are no partnerships that are developed, but conversations about ways that people work that actually can influence those partnerships. So the goal is not to create partnerships. The goal is to have partnerships that we can look at and learn together from. So that Again. if I'm demonstrating the potential outcomes of this kind of work. Exactly. But it's more important to us that as artists and cultural partners and then educators, leaders, people in schooling, that we understand, oh, this isn't about my having this fabulous partnership. It's about my saying, I know that with, with this kind of work, this kind of integrated mindset, that if I use more creativity in my classroom or if I reach outside of my school and make use of cultural partners over time for the rest of my career or my life and work, I can make a change and pay closer attention to the people who are not represented in my everyday work for whatever it's worth. And vice mm -hmm. versa, the cultural partners benefit because they actually have a more intentional community. It's a lonely life when you're a creative. You don't yes. always have uh, the school that you go to every day or the place that you go to every day. Mm -mm. Or you wish you could work closer with schools or sort of show that you're making more of an impact with your beautiful work. This allows you as an individual creative person to demonstrate, again, that word demonstrate seems to come up a lot today. It I does. not okay. that much about it, but it seems like a word that I'm using a lot. But it does show that what you're doing matters to a larger audience, if to use sort of arts terms. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important. So our community of practice is one part of this. And again, I'll talk about the critical in a second. But I just want to acknowledge that there's another monthly gathering, which is what we call Peace Outs, yes. where, again, instead of just discussing the issues, we actually participate as, again, a community of practice People go together and have a cultural experience, either at the aquarium or at a jazz foundation or whatever. And we actually learn about a cultural resource in the community, but sort of through the eyes of our sort of peace, educational, social activists, you know, sort of mindset. So that we're just all having that, um, that rich experience where you go deep with the art and creativity. So that's all happening monthly, 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 monthly. We come together, we share, we learn and grow from each other. So why critical? 
So why a word that's so difficult? Well, again, my my doctoral research and many years of being in the field shows me that if we are not critical, we still believe in critical thinking, which is really questioning, right? But questioning has become fraught. If we ask someone to question authority, question the way the status quo, question the way we do things, then you're being a troublemaker. You're creating problems. We really want folks to not be troublemakers, but as um, the most John Lewis Lewis said, right? (laughs) We should get into some good trouble. We should (laughs) and again, by doing that, but good trouble, again, in his real um, sort of lived experience was to sometimes stand for what you believe in, but stand in a way that's not dangerous, um, but stand in a way you get in someone's way a little bit and make them have to kind of think about why you're there. And this project is very much about that. So we're not shy about saying, you know, something's a problem. Can we talk about it? A problem in the way we're doing things, a problem in the way our students are challenged, a problem in the way the world is imposing itself on them. It just keeps on going. Yes. So that's our criticality. And again, back in the day when I was doing this research, I was um, significantly influenced by both John Lewis, Paulo Freire, um, again, sort of a critical sort of a pedagogue who actually cared very much about liberatory thinking and ways that we liberate our students and help them to see that it's okay to ask questions about where they're at. Um, So, yeah. So that's the biggest, that's the, the, both the theory and the action of what we do every day. Um, That's great. Yeah, it is. And I think this is true of educators, I think, in places all over the country. But here on Long Island, I I know personally with friends and other colleagues, it is very hard (laughs) to be a teacher on Long Island. You have some very loud minority voices who are just attacking teachers regularly accusing them of indoctrination and all of these horrible things to the point where I have quite a few friends who are ready to quit or who have quit, who've moved on to other careers. And so I think the other idea of creating this community of practice is a safe space to address these issues, but also feel like, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person going through this difficult period in time as and. I am I have seen it in our summer institute. I think it's incredibly inspiring to attend that and see this community actually begin to form in front of our eyes, right? And it was emotional and beautiful. And um, I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of some of maybe the highlights of these critical community of practices for you, sort of big wow moments or, oh, that was emotional moments, even if it just using the Summer Institute as an example. Of course. Thank you. And so, you know, there is at the core of all of this, our humanity, right? Like we are all human beings. And so, yes, if somebody is at odds with you and yes, politically, however things roll out, there's always going to be somebody who, um, um, is sort of feeling on the outside and trying to make themselves you know, sort of inside, whatever inside, outside that is. So when I do design the curriculum for our summer institutes specifically, I do design them with um, 
a goal that we will have sort of emotional content. Um, and again, it's not to try to make people cry. It's to help people to feel, again, another brilliant, two brilliant philosophers who I loved and who, again, influenced everything about me as an educator are um, the philosopher Maxine Green, who used an old educator's definition of, of aesthetic. So the idea is that we use the arts in learning so that we have an aesthetic experience. Well, aesthetic sounds fancy. It's a fancy art word. <laughs> but her definition, and again, she sort of borrowed it and reshaped it from educator John Dewey at the turn of the, 19, uh, the 20th century, when another century was new. She said, aesthetic is the opposite of anesthetic. So instead of trying to create experiences where we don't feel anything. Anesthetic numbs us. We are trying to make people feel something. So intentionally, we design the curriculum for Summer Institute to include real students, to include the voices of people who otherwise might not be heard, um, to make us look at ourselves. There's always reflective work done in our summer institute where you have to go deep and you're like, wait a minute, this is a training. Shouldn't I just be like learning things and checking them off the list so I can go get my certification for this gig? Instead, we're saying, nope, we're requiring that you feel something because that is when the work begins. And so, yeah, so um, the other educator that I think brought the word love into education is bell hooks another brilliant thinker who talks about love in education talks about feeling in education just like against maxine green these two women were rare woman educators at a time when they weren't represented anywhere right. yeah and so helping people to feel deeply um whatever their role is men women purple polka dots it doesn't matter Feel something deeply as we do our work is the goal of Summer Institute so that we never forget. You can't forget a, a memory, a flesh memory, I think they call it in Harry Potter, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you can't forget a bodily memory. And yeah. so like, the body will remember it too. You might forget the prompt that actually made you feel weepy or euphoric, but something about the creative and emotional connection of Summer Institute, for example, when we had again, indigenous people coming and actually talking to us about, um, you know, sort of the land that we were on and sort of its its development over time um, on Long Island really made people start to be quite sensitive about the fact that we have a debt of reciprocity back to not only other people who came before us, but to the earth that we're walking on yeah. and nature that we're taking over. And people were feeling pretty deep about this. And so, yeah, so that's where the reflective work is important. That's what art does. Art makes us feel. It is the opposite of anesthetic. It is aesthetic. And our job is to feel things very deeply and to interrupt the smooth, anesthetic, non-feeling educational experience that often gets delivered in a school, um, which is hard for people who have body feelings. Yeah, definitely. Laura, I could talk about this with you all day. 
as a fellow arts educator and as someone's <laughs> part of this project, but we should probably close this conversation for now. I'm sure we'll have you back in the future because, again, you are a fountain of knowledge and experience when it comes to this topic. But I just want to end by asking you sort of in a perfect world. <laughs> Imagine that, which yeah, it's not. I'm working on that one. But let's dream big. Where do you see peace in five years? What would you like this project to look like? I think in five years, I would like to see two things. And they're pretty, they're pretty achievable. So I, I suspect they'll be real. One of them is that peace as an entity um, that was just sort of sparked and developed and it's two years old and now has only three years left and it's sort of funding. But that yeah. peace at the as a program of the Patchog um, Arts Council will continue to do this sort of demonstration work where it just continues to keep this community um, intentionally alive and intentionally critical. So that the expectation is that not just in Suffolk, Eastern Suffolk County, but sort of, you know, progressively into Nassau and other counties of New York state, there is um, in increased value or rejuvenated value in partnerships that are intentional between creative and educational spaces. That's one. Strength to peace at PAC. The other one is much more global. It's that for every single human being who is either part of the peace project or part of sort of the sharing and learning that we're taking nationally and globally through this project, through the research that's emerging, through our presenting, through our working at policy levels at the United States Department of Education, that local projects like this are spawned um, to strengthen communities, again, of practice or communities, however you want to describe it, to be more intentional everywhere about the social and sort of cultural um, riches that can help people to develop the essential skills of a 21st century world. But also, we didn't talk about this, the culturally responsive aspects and civic aspects of our lives. Yes, we didn't talk about that, yeah. The values, again, of this project, which care very much about civics, um, careers, you know, all that stuff. And again, our ability to be culturally responsive. We described that this entire time without naming it, so I'm naming it now. I think it's really important that we make sure that this idea just continues to bounce around out there. I don't feel like we need to measure X number of partnerships or whatever globally that are happening as a result of peace. I think what we need to do is continue to broadcast and again, exponentially show that when you sort of decolonize, I'm borrowing that word from so many folks, um, but sure. specifically Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's another indigenous scientist who says, we should decolonize our minds. We should learn that it's okay to not be um, rigid in schooling, but in fact, be um, sort of thoughtful and poke holes in our schooling or in our systems so that we reach out into the nature and to the humanity around it and actually make it a much more aesthetic experience so that we grow the way our bodies were designed to grow. Um, thinking about everybody, thinking about the stuff that touches us. So I hope that for the world. And I think, again, our tiny little peace project in the world <laughs> could actually just spark something. I love everything that you said, and I'm <laughs> hoping for a similar spark. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Laura. Thank you very much for actually making this, this work visible 
it's really um, essential. So thank you for your importance. Oh, of course. Well, hopefully we'll talk to you again really soon. My pleasure. Thanks. Well, that concludes this week's episode of the PeaceCast. Once again, big thanks to Laura for her time and incredible insights. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, this is Katie saying, peace out. 